0: Let's all take a moment to talk more than football.
2: This is Talking Devils, your favourite Manchester United podcast. I'm your host, Wayne Barton, joined by the legendary former Manchester United defender, Paul Parker. Paul, how are you doing this week?
0: I'm fine, thank you very much, Wayne. Not bad at all.
2: Good stuff. Um, looking forward to a new season?
0: Um, I'm just about getting there. I just think there's it's been there's so much football on TV. Then we went straight to the Euros and... Now I'm getting to the stage where I'm trying to hunt down a little bit of football on TV, but no one is showing it at this moment in time. Maybe the broadcasters are just giving everyone a little bit of time, but there's nothing really on TV at this moment in time.
2: Yeah, um, yeah, the United Ones are going on MUTV. And obviously the fans can get there now as well, which is good. Um wasn't able to get to the Brentford game last week, but looking forward to hopefully getting try and get to the Everton one if, if that still goes ahead. Um, so, guys, please, if you're watching, um, like and subscribe to the video. If you're watching live on YouTube, then feel free to get your questions in. If I work out, I'm still trying to work out how to ask them, but if I, I do, I'll, I'll make sure that I get them put to Um Talking Devils is always brought to you in association with classic football shirts. Um, listeners and viewers to the show can get a 10% discount using TOTD10 at the checkout online. I always like to give a plug to the United Things that we um, are associated with I, I guess, or, or try and champion uh, the Duncan Edwards F- Foundation and Museum in Dudley, which is run by Rose Cook Monk. Um, she does a great job r- running the museum down there. So a stone's throw from the, the statue of Duncan in Dudley Town Centre. Um, it's really good if you go in there Um, and education for anyone about the Busby babes, um, and obviously supports keeping their memory alive. Um, so I run through the recent videos. We, we had a podcast last week with Martin Edwards, um, and his best 11. I recorded that with Paddy Barkley some time ago, but released it last week. So on Friday's uh, YouTube show with Phil Marsh, we ran through his best ever 11 with Keane Frayner, a couple of great stories in there about Nemanja Vidic's reserve team. Debut and how horrendously that went. I'm um, not going to put you through your best 11 today, Paul. We've got a few different things to talk about. The 2 2 with Brentford last week was pretty entertaining. A couple of, well, all, all the goals were pretty good. Um, not really much in, in the way of conclusions to be drawn from that. We talked about that on, on Friday's show with Keenan Phil. Um, but the game at Preston was postponed due to a COVID outbreak in the, the United camp, um, all the players back in training now, apparently everything's fine. Um, I, I don't know how much to talk about the, the sort of COVID aspects of it, but from the aspects of the shorter, like now the truncated pre-season, and we've only got like one warm-up game, <laughs> I'm, I'm looking at the start of last season, I'm looking at what happened, you know, with Palace and Brighton and Spurs and, like, those were our warming-up games and we got absolutely, we were taken to bits in, in those games and looking now, you know, our, some of our Euros players are going to be coming back. They're not even going to play friendlies; They're going to be straight into the team. Do you have any concern about that? I mean, I do. I have a massive concern, but I'd like to get your thoughts on that.
0: Um, I don't really have a concern because if you because it seems it's going to be, like, in the context of, or the words used, I should say, is you're damned if you do, if you're damned if you don't. Because if United suddenly were to bring those players back now and try and ram in two, two three games for them to play together, and then they do it, everyone will come out with these, with these new words that they've all learned because of the media and what the way football talks about it, or oh, they shouldn't be playing because they've played in the Euros and they might still be tired. I'm sure a lot of the players now want to play but they're having to sit around because of what football's become now and the manager's wary of that in the back of his mind going, so if I play them now and they get injured then everyone's going to be throwing that in me asking me why am I going to play them but if they don't play and they come into the first game of the season then all of a sudden then things don't go right in the first game the problem's going to be because those players haven't played a game they haven't played together and I think a lot of clubs are in the same situation but for me, the only thing you can do is everyone is virtually off the same hymn sheet. Everyone's gonna gonna hit the ground running. Everyone or some teams are gonna start better than others, and it just makes it maybe a maybe a little bit more of a level playing field in certain ways.
2: Everyone's, well, like last season, a little
0: season bit season. In, there in that way. But I think it's the football is gonna be one thing. Football is gonna be a hundred percent better than what it was last season and the last and the previous half-season as well, because there's going to be people in the stadium. So if any player's lacking a little bit, the fans, in certain their own certain way, will let them know. And the player himself, is ego about himself, about being a footballer and the fact of he doesn't want to be embarrassed or let himself down because he might be struggling to get he, to get that first gasp of air that he needs sometimes in that first game. You do all the pre-season you want, but that first game... You're still struggling. Play, you see players with their hands on their knees trying to, trying to get their breath. It's difficult because one thing you can't train for is playing in front of people, playing in front of 30, 40, 50,000 people, even 3,000 people if you're playing in the lower divisions. They're not used to that, running around fields all the time with two, you know, two men and a dog watching them. It doesn't, you can never, ever give them that feeling of knowing that they don't want to mug themselves off. Yeah. In front of people, not being able to, they didn't, you know, see something happen because they weren't switched on. So, I think, I don't think there's much to really a big concern about it. Wayne, it's everyone's going to be in the same boat. You know, something they have to get on with. And then maybe the season, no, it's going to be the season after next season is the one when things might be start getting right because the season after this one is the issue of a World Cup popping around so um we've got to get over that bit as well which people again are going to be moaning about and have reasons because they're worried about the players who are playing in their team
2: yeah especially considering it's in the middle of the season um morning mike by the way um if you're watching live then do get questions in try and get them um, answered um as, as we go along that that's an interesting thing you said there paul obviously Um, a lot of teams are going to be in the same boat and the players as well and the problem is that you you could theoretically say well you give the players who've had the run out in pre-season but those players are still going to need to come back into the side, they're still going to need those games to get fit so if you get a player like Fernandez or a player like Luke Shaw who's played a lot of the tournament, they come in You know, you can't ease them in gently. They've all got to start. They've all got to be in that same boat coming in. And, yeah, they've missed pre-season, but that's where they're going to have to get the game time, unfortunately. So, if we end up seeing performances like we did at the start of last season, I don't know. Maybe it's a case of having to suck it up. I I don't know. But, you know...
0: it was going to be a little bit more so. The players were a little bit ring-rusty that the last time they they were in this position of starting the season, they didn't really know what was going to be happening. Every day, there was always things being said about footballers you know you know that you know they hairdressers ran their houses because they all would look trimmed everyone was looking for reasons to, to slate football and footballers so there was a precarious position in that way they couldn't do they couldn't do anything right as such even with people you know with the games that they were playing in they weren't real but I think this time around I think the players are looking forward to it I think if you're in England if you're a player who's been playing for England in the world um, in the Euros you're going to want to come back and play because I think a lot of them will get a little bit of adulation from even away fans for what they've done for their country during the Euros. So they're going to they're going to want to come back and play after what's gone. They, there's that good feel factor that the England players have got at this moment time. So they're desperate to get back as well. So I think people are looking people are looking forward more to this season, I should say, the players than what they were last season, just because they're coming back and They're playing in front of crowds, which, if you're a footballer and you don't enjoy the adulation of playing in front of a crowd, what goes with it, it and maybe the negative aspect, then you shouldn't be playing the game.
2: Is there any part of that? I mean, you're one of the few players who know what it's like to get to a semi final with England. These are, this group have now got this distinction of being the only. Team in the generation, well, a few generations to have got to a final, is there that extra boost of optimism that comes with that that, that sort of confidence boost that you get.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, it's definitely there. I can't say it's in the same vein as what it was back many years ago because I think there's definitely more expectation now where before there, there was expectation, as so there was now. But people look at it more, look at it now, and say, "Well, we should have got to the final when before." People to say, "Cool, we've done really well to get there." People expect England to always achieve at this moment in time. It's it's what footballs become. It's what life's become. Our expectation has definitely g- gone above everything else over this last 18 months. Things, so many things have changed, and I think one of them now is that in the belief that you know whatever's gone on, England should have been that final. You know, everyone's coming out and saying, "Oh, we got an easy draw all the way through," which in theory it was made easy the path. Was there to be um, to be taken and to and England took it and got there. It's just at the end where it, when it really mattered, they wasn't good enough. They wasn't as good as the team who was the best team from the first day.
2: But those but but, uh, to be fair not. though, uh, sorry to interrupt, but to be fair, there's still that optimism around it, right? It's not like a they're not being deflated going into season. It's not optimism that oh, wow, we got to the final. Yeah, yes, there was probably a fair chance that they could get there if, if the thing sort of fell for them as they did. But they still the confidence of so like they still played fairly well. But like you said, the best team we talked about it last week, you know, the best team won in the final. That's
0: that's what you have to look at. You can't keep berating people and you know, at the end of the day, you get to, you get to it and it's about who performs the best. The Italians performed the best. England didn't at that given time and okay it went to penalties, but the the better team won the penalty competition. It's a similar set of team that's better over the 120 minutes won the competition. So that's the way you've got to look at it and we'll have to move on and just say and it's an experience that could be used at another time.
2: Yeah. Um, Nihal asks, um, we'll talk about signings in a moment, but Nail asks, um, to sort of segues into that, uh, Paul, what, what's your feeling? Do you think United have got another big signing in the, in, in the transfer window? And I presume he, he, he means after Brand's completed. Do you think we've got one more in the bag? I
0: would I would like to think so. I'd like to think there is something there that's going to get people talking and believing in, in what Manchester United do. I mean, I'm seeing things now. They're talking about Neves. Hmm. Now, I've always, I mean, as as many people, I think journalists, every time they talk about Neves, they always use the words or different kind of words but in the, but meaning the same is he feels like he's been around for ages and he's only 24 I mean he was a kid superstar when mm-hmm. he was at Porto. I think he captained a team in the um, Champions League at one point as well if I remember rightly or something there was something about him in the Champions League people were talking about but has has he reached his potential yet I don't think he has and he was he was a standout player for Wolves, but he wasn't consistent in what he, in what he done week in week out. I mean, when you're talking about someone striking the ball and scoring the kind of goals he scored, there's only been one player during my time I can remember doing that, and that's Paul Scholes. Mm-hmm. The way he hits volleys and everything yeah. is just about him. Now, if he was playing for a Manchester United with the kind of players that they that might be in front of him, then you're talking about his game will improve as you've seen. Many players come, come to Old Trafford who suddenly lift another level. I think you see more players who have gone down levels because they couldn't deal with the fact of playing for United. But someone with Nevis, who then could be playing with a, a countryman as well in Fernandes, sitting, playing in that defensive midfield role. And you've got somebody who can play the game from deep areas as well, which United have been lacking for a long, long time. Then you think, hold on a minute, there's something that's grabbed hold of the midfield He's a big name in my opinion, He's, but it's about what kind of path a Man United going going down. Are they going a big name with a good marketing value or are they going with a big name who's a big footballer? Now, if they go down the path, the latter of what I just said, then Nevis is a good one to go and get. If they want to go and spend fortunes and bring on somebody who's going to sell jerseys, then that's not the path they need to go down this moment in time. They need to go and get someone who was proven in the Premier League, but still a big name, still a lot of potential. And that's Neves. If yes. if, if the story's the right way, is what I'm seeing today.
2: Yeah, it's a sensible one, isn't it? I mean, yeah. I, I know over the um, summer when you've been asked for your opinion, you've talked up Declan Rice, but obviously that'll be astronomical. Um, and United mm-hmm. have spent a lot. So Neves... Um, and Neves is a very different player to Rice, don't get me wrong. And th- this actually brings me on to what I wanted to talk to you about um, with Varane. Like, so the signing looks all but confirmed, subject to medical. United announced it shortly after we did the podcast last week. Um, and the sort of consequential pon- point of signing a player like Varane, um, <laughs> I think I wonder if like this is going to come back to hold me for the thing that I've been saying for the last two years, that um, United have been playing with this really pragmatic shape of two holding midfielders because the defence needed protecting. Um, and I know that we've had that conversation so many times of, oh, we should let them off the leash in, in certain games at home where we don't need to play like that. Now we've signed another quality defender. You would think that we don't need to play two holding midfielders. Um, it's going to change the, whatever dynamic that is going forward. If it's a 4-3-3, three, three, if it's just one holding midfielder and, and two players with the freedom to attack, in there, whether the actual composition of that um, sort of six players in front of the defence and goalkeeper changes, you know, in, in terms of the shape, is it going to be a two? Will it be a one? Will Will it be wingers? Will it be two strikers? Um, you would think probably just one striker the way that we've normally played, but the sort of melting pot behind them is obviously going to change with that. Do you think that? Um, do you think that the Varane signing is going to change the way that Ollie's going to... You know, like it's not always going to be Fred and McTominay in, in every game, whereas before it was pretty much in every game. And you saw that when they weren't, weren't there in every game, we, we'd have a lot of problems. Um, I'm not saying that they were brilliant, but the defence needed that kind of protection. And now maybe it doesn't.
0: Um, I still think there's always, there's always going to be concern until people actually see it in motion, really, what happens... I personally don't see. Everyone, we want to label players and all of a sudden, everyone, you know, now being a, a defensive midfield player is the, is the be on an end, end or football at the moment. Everyone is talking about this. When no one ever labelled Roy Keane, no one, no one ever labelled Brian Robson and no one ever labelled points. All they mm-hmm. were, they, they were midfield players. They weren't defensive. They weren't attacking Robbo. Could defend maybe better than most defenders but he could attack as good as any attacking player but that that, that tells you by the all, the, all the, the kind of goals he scored from outside of the box in the box late runs into the box taking three kicks Roy was very similar Roy wanted to be all over the park doing everything Paul Wentz was very was much the same as well but now we want to label players so if you're looking at um, Fred, and you're looking at McTominay and you call them defensive midfield players. then in theory, to be honest, really, you're, you're, then you're, they shouldn't be defined as defensive midfield, midfield players. but They're not. It's as simple as that. They're not. They haven't done. They haven't done a job. So going back to what you're saying, I think United, if they were to sign someone like Nevis, who sits in that role, he knows where to stand. He doesn't you don't see him flying about making crunching big tackles. He nicks the ball off of people's toes. He sees he puts himself in positions that stops people passing. People don't see that. People think if you're a defensive midfield player, you've got to be making tackles, contact all the time. And all of a sudden you get a yellow card in five minutes, people screaming, get him off, get him off, he's going to be sent off. They're that good, these defensive midfield players. They actually know how to make a tackle and not to put themselves in that in that position again if they've been caught before. They're quite good at it. Mm-hmm. So someone like Nevis could just sit in there and block channels for people to pass the ball so they have to move it around. And that's so what
2: what, why playing against Wolves was so difficult for us. Yeah. Yeah.
0: That's what, that's what That's what he'd done. And yes, he got booked for a few, time, a few times because he made challenges that his manager would come in at half time or after the game, if he's got a yellow card, or say well done,
2: yeah,
0: because he, he, he knew he couldn't do anything else because he knew that something had happened and they wasn't prepared at the back to deal with it. So he would just go bang, and that's it part and parcel of the game. Teammates pat him on the back, his home, his fans pat him on the back, the away fans want him sent off. Simple as that. So the, the just, bus
2: gets foul, isn't it? The bus yeah. gets.
0: Foul. And it's, it's it's what they do. Is you are you're born in a way to do that. You've got a defensive mind, but when you get the ball, you've got you've got that kind of a bit about you that you can actually make a pass to make a difference for you to progress forwards. And United haven't haven't got that at this moment in time with neither of those two. If you call them the, is it the McFreds as they're called as a couple? Yeah. And I said this ages ago to you Wayne. I couldn't tell you when it was. It could have been. Two decades ago, because I've lost so many years over these last 18 months, is that I said that United cannot challenge the Premier League's Premier League titles with Matoma and Fred in midfield. They yeah. can't. They, they can't do it. When you're talking about one of those two, at least one of those two playing in every game for Manchester United to go and win titles, it isn't going to happen. It, it it can't happen because they're just they're just not up just not up to it. And yeah. as much as everyone keeps talking about it when it's good. I think everyone is starting to see it and maybe people saw it last season, but it isn't good enough on a consistent basis for those two to be in a be regulars in a Manchester United team that wants to challenge City and Liverpool to win the league.
2: Yeah, Mike Pierre says, oh, there is only one defensive midfielder with the attacking players Oli now has. More often than not, let's go and outplay, dominate and outscore opponents. Which is a, a good point. And we, we talked about the early, well, when, when we started doing the podcast together, it was just after Ollie had come in. And we always sort of commended his sort of um, tactical approaches in some of those early games because, um, and that was with the squad that he inherited. You know, he looked at things, he was like, oh, I'll, I'll mix it up for this game. You know, we won at Arsenal, we won at Spurs, we won at Chelsea. I'm not saying that we always played brilliantly, but. He showed great tactical flexibility, is what I'm saying. O- Oli did, and I think that a lot of people have been critical of him. And I, you know, I, I tend to agree. Maybe there's too much. You know, like we've said before, we've seen the benefit of praise with Lind, uh, benefit of faith with Lindelof and with Shaw. Um, I'm not saying that we are convinced with Lindelof, but we both saw that why Ollie picked him and said, "All right, that's why he's doing that." That maybe it hasn't um, paid off with Tomane and Fred, but they've been the best of a bad bunch. So that's been what he stuck with. And now we'll see what we've got going forward. mean, um, it seems like he's fixed a lot of those problems. I mean, fixed one problem on the right side with Sancho, hopefully fixed the, the problem in defense with ran hopefully. And if he does that in the midfield as well with another player, it's just been incredible, incredible window for us. What, what do you reckon about that sort of, um, you know, obviously there's been a lot of tactical criticism of Oli in the last sort of 12 months, but like I said, in the first few months of him being United, he seemed to show a, a, a fair bit of mouse with that. So, do you think that maybe having a player like Neves, um, and we'll use Neves as the example here because he's such a he has such a particular skill set that he can operate in that role. Do you think that that really opens the door to you know a variety of different options that United can use to to attack?
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've mentioned Neves only because I've just seen it. Just yeah. around today, and all over. I want to say the press, but it's not just so much the press. It's anybody who wants to call themselves a journalist now, isn't it, really? But um, seeing it then, and it only it only stayed with me because of, I like him as a footballer. I like yeah. when in deep areas, but he's one of those ones who could hit a 30, 40-yard pass. And when you've got players who know know that to to make a great pass, they have to make they have to make a run. A great pass to be deemed a great pass. Not run when the pass has been made already. That's too late. Average defenders will see that and can deal with it. If you just doesn't matter how good a defender there might be around. If you make a run early, you're gonna you're gonna make you're gonna affect them. And if if you're not going if you just make a run, it doesn't always mean you're gonna get the ball. But you're asking a question of that player. And Nevis is one of them. When he's in, if he's on the ball and he's got time, defenders panic because they look around. What's going on? because he's got time to pick a pass. And that's why you see teams always trying to close him down deep, trying to get up high at the field as possible to close him down because they don't want him having time with the ball. And that's what the game's about now. If you can't get close to players, then you've got to deal with them from from a distance away to stop their forward passes going in behind you. And having Nevis in there adds another dimension to United's attacking game. If you're talking about Sancho on one side, Greenwood on the other, then you're talking about Cavani and even Fernandez making a late run, but someone like Fernandez will benefit from having a player who can play in behind him like a Nevis, rather than him trying to do it himself. Because I think everyone has noticed with Fernandez is that he's one of those players and you see him sometimes berating his teammates, because he's just so frustrated with certain players who can't do what he wants to do or can do. He's a bit like it in a way like a Roy Keane. Roy yeah. got get got frustrated with because he he, did, he couldn't understand why people couldn't do what he was doing. And, yeah. and that's what Wright And Fernandes is very much, and you can see him, and he gets very angry and he keeps dropping deep. And he's virtually saying, look, here we are. This is what I want you to do. And then he'll go and do something. And you look at him and you, most people are thinking, "Cool, he's arrogant. But he's, there's an, there is an arrogance, which is a good kind of arrogance, which top players have got. They believe in their ability. And Fernandes has got incredible self-belief. In his own ability and he yeah. struggles to uh, to relate to people who can't match him in what he's trying to do so Ollie being Manchester United at home have to in my opinion play with a, only one player that people will relate to as somebody who can do a job defensively because everything about United at home has always been going forward teams hated coming there and the first thought would be, would be with them to sit deep not to don't attack. If you're going to attack, make sure you've got people in and around you. Don't do it on your own, you know, because you're going to go nowhere because they're just going to come back. And they haven't got that at the moment. Teams came, have come to Old Trafford and felt they could get something. Some of the results they've had over recent... Since Sir Alex um, has retired, some of the results against certain teams have been awful. The teams that have never won there before have suddenly come there. Burnley... Have, were coming out, and Burnley, were, every time Burnley come there, one was talking about, oh, you know, they've come there last of time and got draws. Burnley always come there believing they could get something, which was incredible, you know, seeing Swansea City go there and get something. And that's how mad it's got. Away from home, in the bigger games, you think yourself, okay, you've been a little bit, you don't want to lose to people you're competing with for the title. You've got to have an element of, you know, element of, say, um, doubting the game about you don't want to go gung-ho so you, you might just decide to go that little bit and play maybe to put an extra body in there and take and pull one away from your front line and then you can maybe change that when things go your way. but I think at home United 100% have to go and look like a side that want to go and score goals and straight away trying to mentally win the game in the tunnel when they yeah. come out. Because every time I come to Old Trafford as a player at Queen's Park Rangers, and you go in there and you and you look along the line and, you know, they game, they always say games ain't won on a bit of paper because they're names. But I'll tell you what, you stand there and you look at them and you remember what you saw on them on TV the night before if he was playing Sunday or match of the day or you watched them the weekend before, before that. There is a concern. And I suddenly... Felt it as a player when I joined Manchester United. And all of a sudden, my first games, I'm walking out Old Trafford and Brian Robson's leading that Manchester United. You suddenly believe that you, you're you not going to get beat. Well, you're not going to get beat. Mm. There was always that feeling that you're not going to get beat. And you watch people um, from other sides and you could see them just looking. Just looking like, you know, just, just see them looking at players. It's no different... I'm um, walking out of a tunnel to play a semi-final of the World Cup, and you're looking there, and you're looking at the Germans, and you're just like, you know, everything about them, and there's that little bit of self-doubt there, yeah, because you've seen them playing their, pre- you've watched them in their previous games during that tournament, and you see Matthias, and you're going, wow, and that's what it does, and it affects them, and that could be the, that could be the difference of you scoring an early goal at Old Trafford, which completely just gets everyone up gets everyone relaxed and then they're waiting, they're sitting down and waiting for it to happen, the rest of it, another team comes to Old Trafford to get demolished. That's yeah. got to get I, back again, Wayne.
2: I love that. Um, I'm reminded because it's Sammy McElroy's birthday today that he played in, the team that he played in that you grew up watching, McElroy and Macquarie played in midfield and they were really attacking players. You know, there wasn't a tackler in that front six, and yet they, they still managed to tackle and win the ball. And it's like you were saying earlier about and we've talked about it many, many times about the multifunctionality of players and how they get pigeonholed into I mean, I don't want to labour the point and I don't want to get too much on with Tommy Lee and Fred's Spikes, but if you if you consider the skills of a um a holding midfielder, to the two key Um, skills would be tackling and positional awareness. And I think between them, McTominay is a good tackler, but I mean, the positional awareness, I I mean, look, I'm I'm not getting on their belt, like I said, but we're talking about functionality and especially skills for those areas. Um, Let's move on quickly. Let's talk about the goalkeeping situation. Um, Henderson had to pull out of the England squad after He'd, he'd more or less become the United number one at the back end of the last season. De Gea, Perhaps everyone tipped for a move, especially after what happened in the Europa League final, but um, economics around the world are sort of making him look not like a, a viable option for many clubs. And it's a tricky situation for Oli moving into the season. What do you do? Because you, you, can't, um, you can't have a player on that amount of money just sat out to pasture. And and Anderson you know, they, it wasn't always convincing that he was definitely a number one. So... Um, But then again, a lot of people would say that the the Europa final should have been uh, De Gea-Swansong. It's a very tricky one, Paul. Um, How how do you think Oli should handle that?
0: Well, first of all, just going back to the um, Europa um, Europa final, is that I think that the way football's gone, you look at managers now, their experience, and we've had so many situations we've talked about for years and penalties. Oli should have taken control of that. And De Gea should have been taken out the firing line. And yeah. Should have changed. Should have changed. Goalkeeper. The way football's gone now, you've got a goalkeeper sitting there. And if he's a, if he's a, as we know, a specialist penalty, he saves penalties, he can do it. Is better than the one at saving penalties. Then you make that change. I'm quite sure if you spoke to a goalkeeper, they don't think they're a hundred percent. They know they've got certain bits they're not good at. They're maybe not brave enough. They don't anticipate whatever. You've got another goalkeeper there. You can use them, utilise them, rather than them only come on when needed if a goalkeeper's injured, or come and play in the league cups or the early part of the yeah. Europa League games. It's it's just fair. And that's that for me, that's take him out the firing line. It's not his strength as a goalkeeper. He's got other great strengths. So well, that's not one of them penalties and that's nothing against him. And it should never it should never been be taken that way and but all of a sudden De is a bad goalkeeper because he didn't really get near saving a penalty, but I think as well, Oli has to name a number one. He has to be brave. He has to put sentiment away, and just be strong and make a big decision, and then leave it leave it there with the other goalkeepers to decide what they're going to do. Has Tom Heaton come back just to be a number three? I know everyone. He's, he's over for.
2: He's playing well, at least.
0: The- oh, he's, he's. I mean, I saw him at Queens Park Rangers, and you saw. He's still a good goalkeeper, Tom, and he's been very, very unlucky. His injury came at the wrong time for him at Burnley, just when he was just on that bit of getting involved with England and he'd been terrific. And they go and sign a, another goalkeeper, Burnley. He's turned out decent as well. So Burnley seems like the home, home of goalkeepers. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden you've got him and Henderson and De Gea and you're saying, who's going to be number one and two? Tom, I'm sure Tom Heaton hasn't just come back to United just to sit around. He's going to want to play. He must do He's got to still be hungry. I know he's like, there's only that one spot of challenge, but surely there's more chance of him accepting two than three. He's got to have that bit about him. But Oli, this boils down to him. He has got to say who's who's number one. He can't keep just saying, oh, well, you know, Henderson's playing and is he a number one? Well, I'm, I'm not sure, but um, David's doing well in training. He's trying to prove a point. Because David Aheu isn't going to have that. You know, he's... He's over he's from overseas. Um, he hasn't got anyone, you know, family-wise and that everything's back in Spain. Once he gets unhappy, and he's, you know, his wife's unhappy because he's not happy, he's not playing regular, he's missing out on that little that edge of being in a foreign country of playing regular, then you know it's just gonna cause problem. Deal with deal with it now. Make make a point, get the press off your back straight away instead of them, because they're gonna be circling soon to throw it at him. Everybody's going to be having their own squabbles online because they know they know a sauce and all that rubbish. Deal with the situation now and don't let it go on and on. Name your number one.
2: Sounds from what he said that he's probably inclined to say Anderson should be number one.
0: If he, if he's, if he feels that way, then do it. and then he's looking at yeah. Manchester United. He's looking at the long game. Henderson is number one now, age is on his side. That's his building point from there. And then look at it, get, get your, your um, central defensive partnership right and ship shape. And then if that's per, is that a decent central defensive partnership, then you've got the basis then of getting a great Manchester United team that goes and wins a Premier League title. Because every Manchester United team that won Premier League titles, the big ones, you, always, you could always name their centre-half partnerships
2: and the goalkeeper
0: and the goalkeeper sides that win premier league titles people do talk about their goalkeepers always do
2: yeah um that was the same for the team that you were in for sure um a convenient little segue to um finishing the show talking about the 93 94 team now obviously i've chewed your year off about this many 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 times um that was back when we were doing the audio podcast, and I think that now we've moved to the new platform I get the chance to do it again. I always take the advantage of doing that. Um, the 93-94 team made no um, secret of telling everyone that it's my favourite ever team. And one thing I, I don't think I've talked to you about before is um, something that always interests me. I had an interview with Martin Buchan a few years ago when I, I was writing a book on the second division season, and he talks about a game that United played at Blackpool and the attacking play was so good and he said that he subbed back as a defender and he realised why the fans loved it so much, you know he just watched it play out in front of him and obviously from his point of view as a defender he had the best view of it, you know he's watching it happen in front of him and just enjoying it as a fan because the football was so good I think of the players like Kanchelskis who's right in front of you, Giggsy on the other side Keenan and Ince going in for those tackles, Robbo when he was in and Kananar and Hughes. I mean, the way that they could find space for each other and for their opponents. The way that there was, uh, sorry, the teammates. You know, they they were so selfless in the way that they they moved around the pitch. Um, you know, like Rude van Nistelrooy, for example, his movement would be selfish, and I'm not criticizing it for that because it was a benefit to the team. But Hughes and Kansan are, I've never seen a more selfless front pair that could do that for other players. What was it like to watch that on the pitch? Was it um, was it something where you're always keeping like an eye out for it? You've got to be involved in it, or was, that, was, there, was there ever a time where you could just look at it and just enjoy it as a fan?
0: As a fan or as a player?
2: Well, I, I, I mean, sit back in as like thinking like, oh my god, this is, I, I could be a fan watching this and it'd be entertaining.
0: Oh, there was many games I played in when things <clears throat> were just clicking. And it was just going right, and you just knew you weren't going to get, um, get beat. You knew that if a team were to attack, <clears> that they were going to get the ball back, and then we'd hit them on a counter-attack. And you just watch some of those players and you watch the way they moved, and you appreciate the way they played. And what was it, what they expected from you. <clears throat> now, Sir Alex um, had a back four, and anything he got from his back four offensively, I think he looked at that as a plus. In certain yeah. ways because he believed so much in his six in front because they they always were incredible. When you talk about Andre and you talk about Giggsy on the other side, and you could replace Giggsy, with you know, Sharpie would come in, and then you talk about the two in midfield or the three, you talk about Chockey, you had Chockey yeah. in Aswell, who was doing a great job of coming into midfield as well, who would yeah. fill in, and when he came in, his attitude was second to none. It wasn't sulking because he wasn't playing regular. Everybody wanted to, one thing on everyone's mind was to, to win every game possible because then that means that you work in the game go and win medals. And that's what everyone's aim was. And if he you, if you was in that, that kind of you didn't fancy it or it weren't going your way, if people saw that in any way that you was being lazy or there's something, you'll get told. Yeah. And, and you would accept it. You wouldn't fight back, argue back even if you thought that was wrong, you wouldn't do it there, not on a football pitch. You know, you, you just, it wouldn't be allowed because everyone else would go against you. There was so many, like, unwritten rules that you involved and then they weren't said, but you knew what you can, you could do, I should say, and you couldn't do when it comes to playing and when you gave the ball to certain players in areas and you think, you oh, said, hold on a minute, why they want it there and you'll suddenly pull something, something out of the hat it was incredible. And you mentioned about Sparky and Eric, <clears throat> you know, you're talking about Sparky, there was so much left to him, you know, previous to Eric, it was all about Sparky, could Sparky's brute force or his his incredible skill of scoring incredible volleys and things like that, could he get United out of trouble? And he had so many years, Sparky, of doing that. And he, his legs were big enough and strong enough to carry United for quite a while, but the moment Eric arrived, it seemed like some something... A big weight come off of his shoulders, and and all of a sudden you saw a spark of all that incredible and technical ability with the ball suddenly just come out even more so because he he found more space because then he had someone who played with him who people were wary of, seriously wary of, maybe even more so than him. Yeah, and it, it kind of and he it helped him as a player, it changed him as a player. He had someone to play with, someone who was an incredible footballer, but someone who was so unselfish as well in what they did. There were certain bits. Eric was very selfish when he was in certain areas and he would try something and it would go wrong And when he, he could have done something else. But I think the boss's way at the time was when you're in that final third and, you know, there's an opportunity to go and make something happen to score a goal, he wanted players to improvise. He loved those things. Yes, he got frustrated when they didn't come off, but when they did come off, you, you you wouldn't have seen a happier person. How many um montages is there of um Sir Alex and Fer- Sir Alex and um Brian Kidd celebrating together? Then you had then you had um then you had Jimmy as well, Jimmy Mack, who was just sitting there as well, been there so many years, Jimmy, and seen so many what he believed great players come to United, but never achieved went getting league titles and they'd be jumping up and down. The late Norman Davis, a kit manager, who in theory was a supporter, an absolutely fanatical supporter, who was loved by everybody, and you know people like them jumping around because they were seeing incredible football. To be honest, Wayne, football, which you know I might have enjoyed maybe once, maybe as a twice as a player in my you know playing for my previous clubs, but I was enjoying playing and watching. On numerous occasions, as a Manchester United player, it was something which, during that period, that time, it was football which, if people saw it now, they'd have to double check. But that was in the 90s, not in the, not in um the, you know, 2020s or whenever it is, because for some unknown reason, people think that the footballs played then isn't as good now.
2: But well, I, think- I was going to talk to you about this because the. Um, and this was, I'm, I'm glad that you sort of commented on that because it brings me into the point I was going to discuss about the FA Cup run in particular. Um, I would argue, and I do, and I will, that um, there's not been a better Cup run since then in terms of the football played. I mean, you had the the Sheffield United, there was Norwich, um, Norwich are obviously a great side and they were beaten quite comfortably, but the Sheffield United game, was renowned, uh, remembered for Mark Hughes' goal, where all of you played a part in that with all the passes in, in that move. Um, and then the dismantling of Wimbledon, the physical cup team Wimbledon, and the way that you sort of stood up to them physically and then played them off the park in the second half. And then obviously the epic semi finals against Aldham as well. But talk to me first of all about the Wimbledon game. What was that like to play in this? I mean, the first half was a bit of a physical battle, but the second half. You mentioned, it's so funny that you said that, you mentioned two games that you played in, maybe before you joined United, that were like that. And Fergie's quote, I think it came after that game, actually, said there are a handful of games a season where you hope that a United team can play like they did on that day. I think I've mentioned that to you before, but that was a purple patch. You seem to be playing like that every single week, um, certainly in the cup games. But that second off... um, I don't know how to even put it into um, context for a modern audience. If you watched back that first half and you watch Vinnie Jones tackle Eric Cantona, it was symbolic of the way that Wimbledon played, the physicality that they sort of played. And then Cantona scores that great goal. And he's like, knocked the stuffing out of them. And, like, you turned them into pussycats for the second half. You know, you were tying with them. The ball was on a string. Do you know what I mean? Like, I you, you reduced you just, Wimbledon to that.
0: I just think that... Um... I think the second half of that game, I think in the end, I think women have become a little bit annoyed because of the fact of everything they've done to all what they deem as the big boys. Yeah. It weren't they weren't gonna actually do that against us on that occasion. And there's an old adage said many, many it was used in football for many, many years. I don't think they would use it today because it doesn't fit in maybe with the profile of how they want football, but it was you have to win the battle to win the war. Yeah. And, that, and that's and that's and that's how it was it was never it was never ever said by the boss he never used those words but that's how he wanted his players to be but he didn't he didn't have to worry worry about that too much because there was enough players in that team who loved the battle who wanted some who loved a, a big you know a, to get up against people and stand their ground and vinnie Jones' tackle on eric was an absolute disgrace absolute disgrace but what did eric do what did, what did Eric do? Like
2: that, oh yeah. He just
0: he just stood up and virtually just said, Yeah, you you haven't you haven't hurt me, not at all. Is that the best you got? And in theory, that's all that Vinny had to be perfectly honest. He tried that on many plays, done had he done a challenge like that on Steve McMahon, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah. And he done a challenge like that on Peter Reed as well from kickoff. <clears throat> Hit him on the, the D. And that's what and that and that was as good as he's got. And he felt that was gonna worry Eric. I mean that, you know, like, Get Eric, kick him, do that, and then they won't be out of function. We functioned because of Eric kept his call cool and knew at the end of the day when it came to football, there was only one winner. And and that's how it was. And the boss didn't want anyone to shirk and at the, the end of the day, there was a lot of um middle of, the, middle of the road fans there because Wimbledon didn't have great support. So it was all of, you know, it was at maybe an end of Wimbledon. It was everyone who would come virtually, you know. To, to watch Manchester United play in London. A lot of people had season tickets there and it yeah. weren't even Wimbledon fans, but there was a lot of people just to come and watch United play in London. And by the time we got round to that second half, it wasn't about them running out of steam. They just, they just didn't have that drive anymore because their main strength was to physically get up against people, intimidate them, and, and just cause just disrupt the game. And because we kept going as players, you know, so one of them would come in and try and mania. We kept going. We didn't go over. We kept the ball moving. And that was one of the great strengths of football in that era. The ball was hard. The game hardly stopped. You yeah. know, when it when it said 90 minutes, on, the, it was 90 minutes. The ball mostly was in play about 78 to 82 minutes because if there was fouls, people would just stop and go. Yeah, they, you know they wouldn't suddenly be rolling around waiting for a hospital to be built for treatment or things like that. <laughs> while they're On the pitch, players wanted to play football. It wasn't about trying to get people booked. I'd so leave that to the referee, unless something silly happened, like the um, the Billy Jones one. When it I was don't
1: think
2: anyone, there were no appeals. I, I, to be fair, I think in that one it was like it was so blatant that he didn't. We should yeah. have been some offerings to be honest.
0: People yeah. kind of said that bit, but they weren't intimidating, they yeah. weren't any kind of those kind of I'm on a football pitch kind of threat. And if you don't understand that, that means I'm on a football pitch, I'm going to walk up to you, stick my finger in your face, knowing that everyone's going to stop me hitting you. That's yeah. that's the, you know, that's a lot of what the modern game is today. But the game was just as good then, Wayne, as you know yourself. You you know, you watched it, you watched it, you know. You know, up close and personal, the way it was, it was just as good. The technical ability of players was incredible then because the quality of the pitches aren't like today. The balls were heavier, boots were different style. The game was geared up to first and foremost was, as I said, at the start of this really was to win the battle, to win the war. Then the football would come through and it was the better teams won football football matches
2: then. Yeah. Not always. Wimbledon did what they were very successful with that tactic, by the way. Happened mm-hmm. a lot of times. Um, that, well, that was the brilliance of that team. Um, and I'm going to talk next week, I want to talk about the Mark Hughes goal in the semi final and, and everything like that. But, yeah, try it. I'll, I'll put a link in the description, actually. I'll change the link to put it. I'm pretty sure, if not the full game, there are extended highlights of that Wimbledon game online. And it's just that I've made no secret. Like I said earlier, that team is my favourite team, and I would argue um about it being the best the, the best United team because of the football that they play. They're absolutely incredible in that cup run, as we talked about and as we will talk about next week. Um just wow, wow, and that's why. I'm always a little bit lost for words when I'm always embarrassing Paul with his calling him a legend and everything every single week. Um, but, yeah, that's it for this week, guys. Um, hope you enjoyed a little bit of Walk Down Memory Lane. With that, um, I certainly did. I always do. Um, remember, TOTD10 gets you a 10% discount with classic football shirts. And if you're listening to this on the audio podcast, please give us a, a nice review or rating on there. And please like and subscribe if you're watching on YouTube. We will be back next week, guys. Stay safe, stay well, and thanks for listening.
0: The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly teaming up with three for Mental Health Awareness Week this year. Beyond the pitch, beyond the results, we're here to connect fans, getting them to embrace the highs and lows of supporting your club because we're not just fans, we're a team. With two in three football fans having struggled with their mental health,